Hello and welcome to another episode of Nearly Experts, the podcast which brings you closer to the lives and work of PhD students from around the world. As usual, I'm your host, James, and today I'm joined in studio by Sarah White. Now, Sarah was born in Smithers, British Columbia, Canada, where she grew up, graduated with a BA in Medieval Studies from the University of Victoria in 2013. Following year, she headed to the Centre for Medieval Studies at the University of Toronto, from where she gained her master's. And in September of 2014, she came across to St. Andrews, where she started her PhD. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks, James. Now, Sarah is the first of our guests to have actually handed in her PhD. She's currently in the little limbo period between handing in and doing your viva, where you're um, examined for up to, I guess, three, four hours on what you've written. So she's still not quite an expert, but she's the nearliest of our nearly experts so far. Now, Sarah, what was the title of your thesis? Uh, The title of my thesis was Procedure and Legal Arguments in the Court of Canterbury, uh, 1193 to 1300. All right, so you're looking at legal procedure and, and laws in late medieval England? Uh, mid, mid-medieval mid England, yeah. Where does the medieval period go to in England? I assume that it changes depending on where you're, where you're looking at? Uh, it does vary a little bit. It depends on who you ask um, when the medieval period starts and ends. Uh, most people say approximately 500 to 1500. Some people cut off at 1450, which is the uh, arrival of the printing press, but somewhere in that range. And England, more or less within that 500 to 1500 range. Okay. So what is the Court of Canterbury that you're looking at? The Court of Canterbury is an ecclesiastical court, which means it's a church court. It's presided over by the Archbishop of Canterbury, and it's an appeals court. So you have a number of dioceses presided over by bishops in England, and the Court of Canterbury is its the boss court of all of these. It's like the Court of um, Appeal in Canada or the Supreme Court in the States. Okay, and the Bishop of Canterbury at this point what what kind of figure was was he? Because this is pre-Anglicanism, am I correct? Yeah, uh, so he was a Catholic bishop, although it wouldn't have been called Catholic at the time, except in the sense of Catholic as universal. What he was is, aside from a church official, a very, very powerful political figure, in some cases second only to the King of England. He represents the other major power aside from secular power, uh, the King's power. Okay, and was it usual to have courts split up into the kind of church ecclesiastical courts and secular courts? Did secular courts even exist? They did, yeah. England is a little bit odd in this regard. English uh, law is a bit odd. A lot of the courts on the continent followed Roman law quite closely, which referred to as civil law. But England had, of course, um, law based on precedent. This is English common law, which we still have today. So in that sense, there was a little bit more separation between the two, which I'll go into a little bit later, I think. Um, Basically, the the church courts use Roman law as well. Um, So on the continent, you have civil courts using Roman law and church courts using Roman law. So there's a little bit more crossover, whereas in England, the situation is slightly more separated. Okay, so what was the main thesis of your thesis, I suppose, the main argument? The main argument of my thesis was that 
the increased use of Roman legal sources by legal practitioners, lawyers who were functioning in this court of Canterbury, was tied directly to the increase in the professionalization of law. So more Roman law is being used because we have more lawyers being trained specifically to make these sorts of arguments. Um, it's a time, uh, the 13th century is a time when the professionalization of law is really kind of happening in, in the English common law courts as well as in the church courts. They don't really have professional lawyers before this point. So it's at this point when you have people starting to go to university for law, coming back to pursue legal careers, and these increasingly complex and well-cited arguments are a result of that. Okay, and your period that you're looking at kind of oversees the development of this trend. So why those cutoff dates? So the cutoff dates are dictated mainly by surviving court records. For England, we don't have many church court or common law court records, for that matter, prior to um, the end of the 12th century, so about 1200. It was just, there wasn't consistent record keeping up until that point. We have some narrative accounts of legal cases that were very high profile cases at the time, but we don't have evidence really of the day-to-day -day business of the court until then. Um, the cutoff at 1300 at the other end is, again, based on the records spe uh, specifically for the Court of Canterbury. So the Court of Canterbury records are held at Canterbury Cathedral Archives currently, and we have the 13th century records, but then after that, the records were stored in London. However, some people may know there was a massive fire in London in 1666, and at least this is the closest we can guess what happened with the other records is that they were all destroyed at that point. So we actually have a massive gap on either side of this of this set of records. So your period is kind of an island. It is, yeah. Oh, that's quite cool. And even within that period, though, you're able to see the develop these developments in kind of professionalism within the courts. Yeah, um, the first part of the century, we have a collection of just under 100 individual records, which isn't very many, honestly. And when I say 100, this is records that deal exclusively with the appeals jurisdiction of the court. But these are very informal records at the time. There's a lot of letters, there are witness testimonies, but there's no particular form that they take. Uh, but by the end of that century, there are very clear records kept by the court. There's very specific formats that lawyers have to follow for submitting evidence. And basically looking at either end of the century can tell you a good deal about what goes on in the middle. And then there's a few pockets in the middle as well that can confirm that. Okay. And what would a medieval court in England have looked like? Would we have recognized it as a court? I think we would, yeah. You would have your court officials, of course. Now, and usually uh, this is the jurisdiction of the archbishop himself, but he's a very busy man. He delegates this jurisdiction to his official, who is usually a trained lawyer, if, if possible, and if not, then somebody at least familiar with the court workings. So you'd have your your judge, the official of the Court of Canterbury, and you would also have him surrounded by legal experts. So they kept legal professionals on retainer, as the kind of word we would use now um, in the legal profession. Um, they kept him around them around to advise the judge in his decision making and make sure that every angle had been covered. And then, of course, you would have parties appearing with their legal counsel in the same way that you'd have people appearing in courts today. Uh, you show up with your lawyer and sufficient representation, witnesses, so on. And the type of evidence that you're working with, you've said a bit about it in terms of what it contains and how it survives. 
But what are you reading? What are you having to read when you're looking at these? Are they kind of notes scribbled down in Old English? Are they in Latin? What's going on? All of my sources are in Latin, thankfully. I say thankfully because the English common law uh, uses something called law French, which is middle French, but weirdly combined with some Latin as well. It's very, very difficult. Um, so I'm quite pleased that all of my sources are in Latin. And even when witnesses would give a testimony in, in English, for example, then it's always written down in Latin for the official record. So that's nice. As far as readable or not, most of them are quite neat, actually. These would have been usually drafted from the notes taken during a case. So there's actually quite a bit of effort made to have these readable, which is great for me. So when you talk about them being readable, are you actually working with the manuscripts themselves or have they been copied? Did you have to go into a special library, consult manuscripts? I did, actually, yeah. A small selection of these manuscripts have actually been published. Uh, there's a series of books for this um, society. They're called the Selden Society. They print editions of legal texts from England. And this has been very handy. It was a great starting point. But again, it's only a selection. So I did actually have to go to Canterbury to the cathedral archives, which are attached to the cloisters on the cathedral. It's very nice there. And ask for a significant number of records. The staff there are very, very helpful and were able to digitize most of them for me. So I wasn't having to make too many trips down to Canterbury. I could spend most of the time on my computer zooming in very, very close. It's quite small writing. But yeah, mostly mostly manuscript work. So I'm guessing then you had to translate all of the records yourself from Latin. I did, yeah. And I had to do all of the transcriptions myself as well. So they're written in 13th century hands by 13th century scribes. And it's um, occasionally quite difficult, especially depending on the scribe. It can be quite spidery sometimes. The ink can be faded or even missing in some places, you occasionally have to use black lights to read it. That being said, I'm, again, very lucky with these documents because they're the court records are kept in rolls for the most part. And unless the roll itself is crushed, the fact that it's actually rolled in on itself preserves the writing quite well. It stays very clean. It doesn't get dirt all over the, the writing, anything like that. So it's actually not too bad. Okay. So we've Hit on a couple of times already so far, this idea between a distinction between kind of civil law or secular law and ecclesiastical church law. What would make you go to one court over the other? What's the difference here? Uh, it's actually really interesting. There's a legal kind of theory discussion called forum shopping. It's, it's the idea that people would go to whichever court would be the most beneficial for them. Um, and actually... With the way the jurisdiction is set up, this is actually sometimes an option. Church courts, I mean, you think of church courts nowadays and think, what do they have jurisdiction over? Maybe marriage, probably some sacraments, something like that. Or people think, oh, the Middle Ages, yes, they burn heretics and hunt witches. Um, this isn't the case at all. A lot of what the church courts deal with is ecclesiastical property. And parish priests and rectors and people like that all have uh, benefices, they have livings, they have incomes. And it's the responsibility of the church courts to determine who has which one and who has the right to occupy certain spaces, so on. So that's the majority of what my records are about. There are a lot of marriage cases as well. 
um, because the church does have exclusive jurisdiction over marriages and therefore bastardy cases as well, because it depends, you know, are you a bastard or not? Depends on whether your parents were married. So that's the sort of thing ecclesiastical courts deal with. Um, last wills and testaments as well, which, because um, death, lots of involvement with last rites, extreme unction, things like that. Sacraments, again, so this is this is what the church court deals with. So it's much more involved in society, I think, than we would imagine church courts being today. And then it works hand in hand, but also in competition with the secular courts, um, because they deal with property as well. And then there's often conflict between the two. You have, for example, nobles who want to appoint their own rectors to different livings, um, issues like that. So, so I'm gathering you could actually play the courts off against one another if you knew the way around them. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually have a few instances of that in my cases as well. There was a, a lawsuit between a group of monks and a, a knight over who had the right to the income from a certain living. And they had claimed that he should have sued them in the secular courts, not the ecclesiastical courts, because he was alleging that there was violence that had happened in the case. Now, whether or not violence had actually taken place is a completely separate issue, but the wording he was using was the sort that you would use to get a case into the secular courts, because you'd have to pursue a case about violence there, not in the church courts. So he was obviously trying to choose the court that was going to be more favorable to him, or that he thought would be more favorable to him. So if you had people picking and choosing between these two courts, does it mean the same kinds of people were representing them? I mean, who are these, I mean, we called them lawyers earlier, but who are these people in the secular and the ecclesiastical courts? So the lawyers that we have functioning in the courts at this time were, I mean, like I said, they went to university for law, and they may have actually been trained in uh, Roman law, civil law, right, or canon law, or both, or also in English common law. A number of lawyers actually represented the king abroad in administrative roles and were quite involved in politics as well. So they were they were involved in much more than just litigating for their clients in their cases. Um, these same men could also be the legal advisors that a judge would turn to to make a decision in a case. Um, there were actually uh, 12 to 16 of these legal advisors who were usually present in the Court of Canterbury, and these men could function either as legal representatives, as advisors, or sometimes even as notaries if need be. Okay, so, and they must have been quite high up uh, in terms of uh, social status as well. Um, what it seems to me is that they're Upper class, but not so much so that we can find out a lot about them, unfortunately, which has been quite frustrating for me in a lot of ways, actually, is these men are mentioned as uh, so-and-so. This party shows up with his advocate, but the advocate is not named. So you have to piece together some of these documents to see if you can actually figure out who this is. And then if you have a name, you can maybe track them down uh, what, at what the university they went to was, for example, or... If they were clergy, then you might be able to find out if they were a rector of a certain place or a priest of somewhere else. Okay, so being a lawyer did not accept you from being a member of the clergy at all. Like That wasn't necessarily your only job was to be a lawyer. No, and it seems uh, probable that most people's 
most people didn't have this as their only job, um, and they would branch out a bit and, like I said, either represent the king perhaps um, abroad, or they could be more involved in local politics, or they might be lawyers, as I said, functioning in more than one court as well. So have you you said that you could sometimes track back uh, these people to figure out who they were. What kinds of people were you able to find? Have you been able to find any that you can nail down, this is definitely this person? I think the closest I can find for this is definitely this person is a man named Roger de Cantaloupe. Um, this is a very common name. It has nothing to do with melons. Now, he was a lawyer in the 1240s, and he worked as a legal advisor for the official of the Court of Canterbury. And the reason that we know about him, actually, is two things. One is that there's a letter from him and another man named Robert Ludlow, where I can't find anything about advising the court um, and saying that the court has listened to their advice in the past and here is uh, some of their thoughts on some of the cases that were currently pending. Most of it is uh, kind of procedure. I think you should go this way with this case, this way with this case. Um, but the court had actually been having quite a bit of trouble with a certain archdeacon and uh, Roger has decided in his letter to instead of say archdeacon um, to call him the archdemon, which is always quite fun. <laughs> The other record that we have is at a synod, Roger was uh, mentioned by one of the bishops as uh, following in the footsteps of his father who had been hanged as a traitor, which just proves that people hated lawyers as much then as they do now. <laughs> but um, from that, we were able to track down that there was another Roger de Cantaloupe who was in fact hanged, and he did have another a son named Roger as well, and it seems quite likely that this is the same man. It's the closest we can find. There may have been two Roger de Cantaloupes who were lawyers, but hopefully it's the same person. Okay, okay. And I mean, in terms of the kind of social structure, I mean, so they're fairly high up, high up, high up enough to have had contact with the royal court and with the, is it a court at Canterbury? Is that what you call it when it's around a, a bishop? Yeah, you do, you do call it the court. Um, it's the same term in Latin that you would use for a secular court or an ecclesiastical court. Roger did in fact represent the king abroad, um, as I had mentioned, some people did this. Um, and that was um, a job that he was carrying out at more or less the same time as he was working at the court of Canterbury. So he's managed to do to do both. If it's the same Roger as the one whose father was hanged, his father was a knight of the realm. And so that was, I mean, fairly, fairly high up in social structure. Okay, so it's kind of, it could be, but not necessarily similar to the idea that we have in the early modern periods, where you have the first sons inheriting and the second sons going to the army or becoming a lawyer or something like mm -hmm. that. Yeah, Roger was actually the uh, third or fourth son, I can't quite remember. I think he was the fourth son and, yeah, therefore wouldn't have been inheriting his father's land necessarily possible, but not probable. As social status-wise, you did actually have to have a fair amount of money to pursue a legal career as well, because you did have to be trained at a university. And while you could go to Oxford at this point for legal studies, a lot of people went to Bologna, which was quite expensive, as you'd imagine, to travel all the way there. It was the foremost law school at the time, though, and if you wanted to really impress people, that would be quite often where you would go, especially for Roman law. Uh, University of Paris was also very um, prominent at this time. 
Oh, wow. It's crazy to think that those institutions that are still there today um, were around 900 years ago, 800 years ago. Yeah, it is. It's really impressive. And this is a point at which, I mean, Oxford really only started teaching law in the 12th century. So I think 1160, 1170, we have definite uh, teaching of Roman law. But we're talking about people who are working in the courts 60, 80 years later. It's really not that much time. No, definitely. I think that brings us to the end of the first half of our episode of Nearly Experts. Thank you very much for that. That was great, Sarah. I know I knew absolutely nothing about England at any point of the medieval period, aside from 1066. It's an important date, right? Absolutely. So now we're going to go on and talk talk through your road to your PhD, if you're okay with that. Try and find out how a girl from small town British Columbia ended up in small town Scotland studying English law. I was oddly enough asked this just the other evening at um, a dinner and... I've always really liked history. My dad is a really big history buff, and I've always really enjoyed it. I was never quite sure what I wanted to do for history. Um, I always liked reading historical texts and all of that, and did particularly like medieval history. But I also enjoyed um, Greek and Roman history, of course, and I got very interested in some of the early modern stuff as well, enlightenment and so on. It was very, very interesting, right? But as I was coming to the end of high school and deciding what I wanted to do, I was actually thinking medieval history, but with an architectural slant. Okay, so looking at castles or cathedrals? Yeah, both, actually. I was really interested in um, cathedrals and the construction of these. And I was also interested in military architecture and the technological developments that accompanied this. And actually, particularly because my family had just been on a trip to Jordan, actually, and I'd seen you have the Crusader castles right next to the castles built by the Muslims, and you can see the exchange of technology between the two in the way that they're constructed. And I thought, this is absolutely fascinating. But I got to UVic and thought, maybe I'll do this. Went to a class on English medieval law and never looked back. All right. Was the path just kind of straight on from there? I know that, I mean, we went through your bio a little bit earlier and you were literally just straight on from there. What about English law in that first course uh, made you want to continue? I think what really appealed to me about law was partially, I mean, I've always enjoyed puzzles and math and logic and things like that. And law appealed to that side of me very, very much because you can look at it and it is like a puzzle. You have to pull it apart and look at, you know, causation and theory and why people are doing what they're doing and the understandings that kind of underpin what we consider to be law. Um, But at the same time, I also was really struck by law as something that everybody uses. I mean, regardless of what you do in your life, you are going to encounter the law in some capacity. And the way that people use law and the way that people understand law really just fascinated me. Given that that's the case, were you ever tempted to go on and actually do law? I was very tempted to do that, actually. And when I came to the end of my master's year at Toronto, I was considering either it was it was up in the air whether I was going to do law school or whether I was going to do a PhD in medieval law. And I decided to do the PhD. And a good friend of mine was doing the exact same choice at the same time he chose law school. So we decided to compare notes along the way. And uh, I think we're both happy with our choices. He's just passed the bar exam. 
but it was definitely a tough choice at the time. Okay, and if we take a step back and look at your your masters, that was still again medieval law the whole way and English medieval law. Um, it was a little bit less specific than that. So in my undergraduate, I did my honors thesis and a large number of my courses on English law. But um, at Toronto, it's a one-year master's, and most of what I focused on there was actually uh, Latin and paleographic training. Paleography is the study of writing, um, and this was where I gained the skills that I needed to read all of the manuscript sources that I used for my thesis. Okay, when you say the study of writing, what's actually involved in looking at paleography? So paleography is... It depends on what you use it for. So I, I had a, a very utilitarian approach to it. So it was a tool I needed to read the sources I wanted to read. Um, but you can look at paleography um, for its own sake and study the forms of letters and the strokes of the pen and the way that different scribes in different areas choose the styles particular to that area and the development of things like spacing between words and lines um, drawn out on the page to keep things even, stuff like that. So, I mean, depends on what your use for it is, but you can kind of go either direction. Okay, and I imagine you still had to write a thesis for your master's. What was what was that on? I actually didn't have to do a thesis per se for the master's because it was actually technically coursework only. Okay. But what you do have to do is a directed reading. What does that mean? So a directed reading is is basically like doing a class, but it's just you and your professor. And actually, the way it worked out is my, my friend who went to law school, he and I shared a directed reading, and this was specifically on something called judicial recusation. Ju- judicial recusation, in a nutshell, is how you get rid of a judge you don't want, and what the reasons are that you can do this. In medieval England, or...? In medieval law in general. It wasn't specific to England. Um, a lot of the sources we were looking at were actually Italian. But yeah. So um, if you went to court and you suspected that the judge might be biased in some way, how how do you get rid of them? How do you bring this up? And that was, that was what that was on. Okay. So from there, you clearly came to St. Andrews. You decided to do a PhD here. What brought you to Scotland? Well, I came here mainly to work with my supervisor. He's very well respected in the field of English law, and I I came here to work with him. He was uh, recommended to me by my undergraduate supervisor uh, when I was looking for a PhD supervisor. He was recommended as somebody who both was well-known in the field, but also would be able to do both the canon law and common law side of what I was interested in. Okay, and how did you come up with your eventual topic? Because, as I understand, for humanities degrees... Uh, unlike sciences, you do have to come in with your own proposal. Yeah, you do. So I, as I said, I'd done my undergraduate thesis on medieval law. And actually, I had looked at the Court of Canterbury and done a, a cursory analysis of procedure evident in court records. Um, and what I had decided I wanted to do was look at argument and how people were using this procedure and understanding this procedure and then constructing their cases based on it. Part of the reason I wanted to do that was because it seemed interesting to me and useful to me, but also it was something that nobody had really touched on yet, especially in the ecclesiastical courts. People have looked at it a little bit in the English common law courts, but the ecclesiastical courts didn't really get the same attention. Okay. Uh, And how much did your proposal change over the course of your PhD? 
did you still do the same thing that you came into the university to do? Or was there a little bit of a refinement? Has it changed a lot or not at all? It's changed a little bit in that I originally thought that the thesis was going to be a bit more procedure heavy, and it ended up being a bit more argument heavy than I thought it would be, Um, mainly because I thankfully found more evidence for argument than I thought I might, um, which is a great thing. But aside from that, the main overview of the thesis didn't really change that much. Okay, great. I think that's about it in terms of your journey here. Is there anything else you want to put out there? Uh, I don't think so. I think you that's all. You think that's it? Well, in that case, we're going to get to what we do every week we have a new guest on and hit our final five questions. Now, as you know, with every new guest, I go through and ask the same five questions. And it might be slightly different today, not the questions, but the answers or the emphasis, because as we say, Sarah has actually handed in her thesis. So we may need to alter these on the fly. We'll see how it goes. But are you ready for this, Sarah? Absolutely. All right. So question one, what has been the biggest challenge of your PhD experience so far? I think the biggest challenge of the PhD in a lot of ways is imposter syndrome, I would say, and getting around that. Can you explain that to people at home? Yeah, sure. So imposter syndrome is something that you end up with, it seems, when you're doing a PhD. And it's basically that feeling about mm, three months into your PhD and then in a mad panic at the end that... This is all some big joke that you're not good enough to do this. They've let you in because of pity. There's no way that you'll ever succeed at this. And everything is meaningless. Um, it's a great feeling. But I think most people have felt it here at some point um, in their degree. It's it's just the way things go. I mean, and it's, it's what you do as you learn more about your subject as well, as you realize how little you do know about your topic. And sometimes it can be quite disheartening. So finding... Finding ways to deal with that, um, realizing actually that you do know more than you think you do is kind of a nice, nice feeling and discovering how you can, you can fix that for yourself, whether that's improving the skills you know you need to improve or sitting down and thinking through your project and realizing that, yeah, you actually do know what you're talking about or that you don't and you need to learn something else, but, you know, clarifying things a little bit. Okay. Thank you. So question number two, and might tie into this. What piece of advice would you give yourself about PhD life if you could go back to your first day? My first day? My advice would be twofold, I think. My first piece of advice would be that even when it's not fun, you should keep a good schedule. And whatever that schedule is for each person might differ. I mean, maybe the best time for work for you is from midnight till three in the morning. But if that's the time, then make it work for you. The issue that I found is that it was very easy to put things off till the next day. Procrastination, procrastination, procrastination. And it's just not fun in the long run, so don't do that. The second piece of advice I would say, I don't know if it's advice so much as just a comment, um, but that is that the community of postgraduates around you is incredibly important, and it's well worth investing time in your fellow students, because if you do that, then they'll be around when you need them. And it's a great support group. And isolating yourself from that is just a horrible idea. I mean, you make very good friends in the program and it's it's really worth the time. And occasionally they ask you to be on their podcast. Occasionally they do. <laughs> All right. No, I think they're both really good pieces of advice. Um, I'd probably tell myself similar right now. Question number three. So ideal scenario, what do you want to get from your PhD? What do I want to get 
from my PhD in just in general? Yeah, yeah. So ideal scenario, you've, you've finished your PhD, you've done your Viva. I know you have a postdoc. We haven't said that yet. You do have a postdoc here in St. Andrews looking at law. Ideal scenario, if we forget that postdoc for a little bit, what do you personally want to get from your PhD? A uh, sense of closure. <laughs> um, I would, I mean, aside from the satisfaction of having completed the project that you set out to do, which is very satisfying, and I think will be more satisfying after my Viva when I will know how I did with that. If nothing else, I think, I mean, academia aside, it is pretty major to complete a three-year research project, and everybody who does that should be proud of themselves, I think. It's an incredibly difficult endeavor in some cases, and I mean, like I said, if nothing else, you hopefully have spent three years doing something that you're interested in, and I think that's well worth it. All right. Uh, and question four, almost the opposite of that. What impacts do you want your PhD thesis to have? Medieval history is always one of those ones that is sometimes, or history even in general, I think is a little bit hard to justify in some regards. Uh, people say, you know, what, what does it matter that this thing happened in the past? But I think the impact I'd like my thesis to have would be for people to realize that things weren't so different, even if it was seven, eight hundred years ago, and that a lot of what we do now is based on those medieval foundations. Kind of in a nutshell, lawyers have always been lawyers, and that's cool. I think it is cool. And question number five, and this might be a tough one for you to answer because we're going to take back all your medieval studies. If you'd never done medieval history, what do you think you would have ended up doing? What would you be doing right now? If I hadn't done medieval history, does that discount any other sort of history as well? Let's say it does. Let's say it does. Okay. Well, honestly, I would probably be in law at this point. I actually was a legal secretary for a while between my undergraduate, briefly, and my master's year, um, six months. And I really enjoyed that. And if I hadn't decided to pursue academia, I probably would have gone the law school route and ended up doing that. All right. That brings us to the end of our interview. Thank you very much for joining me here, Sarah. Thank you very much for having me. No, of course. And so I guess that's it for another episode of Nearly Experts. Thank you very much for joining us at home. Remember, if you do like the podcast, find us on Facebook, give us a like, rate and subscribe on iTunes. And I guess you'll hear from me soon, I hope. See ya. You can take that if you want.